Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our blessed Father, as we reopen your word in our very midst, indeed, Lord, in our very hearts, we pray the Holy Spirit will anoint both the delivery of your scriptures and the hearing thereof, that we will come away this day even more sanctified by the truth of your word, and that for the sake of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Well, I do invite you to open up God's Word and let's turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to begin at the very last verse of John 7, which is verse 53, and then read all the way to verse 11 of chapter 8. Beginning at verse 53, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. May God give us this day the ears to hear His holy word. There is perhaps no part of God's word encircled with more questions than John 7, verse 53 to chapter 8 in verse 11. The questions surrounding this passage is not related to its doctrinal content at all, but rather to its place in John's gospel as an authentic portion of the apostles' original gospel account. In other words, the questions facing John 7, 53 to 8, 11 is raised in the light of what is called the science of textual criticism. What textual criticism seeks to do 
is to weigh and evaluate thousands of surviving copies of the New Testament. Among these remaining copies, there are different families and schools of these manuscripts, out of which some are considered to be more accurate than others. But at every single detail, the copies do not always agree. However, as it concerns the main substance of Scripture... More than 99%, hear that again, more than 99% is in agreement in all the families of the copies. It is in less than 1% of the biblical text that a different or variant reading is found. Yet what is so remarkable about this fact is how that not a single major doctrine of the Christian faith is altered or modified in any degree by these variant readings. But it is in this context of textual criticism where John 7, 53 to 8, 11 is the most interesting. First of all, it is a fact that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of John's gospel do not contain this account. Which is why, looking at your Bible, there should be a parenthetical statement telling you the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. So that is a fact. But what's also a fact is that in other early manuscripts, this narrative is found in Luke following chapter 21 in verse 38. Second of all, The vocabulary and style of the story offer further evidence that John did not write it. For example, the reference in verse 3 of the scribes and Pharisees is a pairing together found frequently in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but nowhere in John. Furthermore, verse 53 to verses 1 and 2 suggest that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to bed down for the night. Yet this action of our Lord, according to the synoptic gospels, occurred only during the week Jesus would be crucified, not before. In addition to this, many textual critics maintain that while there are multiple expressions and constructions found in this passage, which are not characteristic of John's writing, yet, and this is important, they are characteristic of Luke in both his gospel account and his writing, the book of Acts. So while we can say rather conclusively that this narrative did not originate with John's writing his gospel account, yet, and understand this, we cannot say conclusively that this narrative is not a record of authentic history from the life of Christ. Now listen to this. The most respected and reliable textual critics argue that John 7, 53 to 8, 11 is beyond doubt an authentic fragment of apostolic tradition. For one thing, it contains no teaching that contradicts the rest of Scripture. None. Moreover, what we see in this narrative about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ is consistent with what we read in the rest of the Gospels. Nothing and the words and actions of our Lord recorded here are at odds with anything else we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and in the rest of John's gospel account. This is why 
the overwhelming consensus, and I emphasize that, the overwhelming consensus regarding this story has been to defend its reliability and its place in Scripture, though admitting, though admitting that in John's Gospel it is not found in the earliest manuscripts. When John Calvin wrote his commentary on John's Gospel, he did not omit expounding John 7, 53 to 8, 11. His reasons for this and the position he took to teach it is where I stand as well in moving forward to unpack this passage. Here's what John Calvin wrote. It is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches and some conjecture that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But as it has always been received by the Latin churches, that's the churches in the West, and is found in many old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of an apostle, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. So, beloved, to our advantage, we will proceed to the exposition of John 7, 53 to 8, 11, where we will focus on the main subject of this account, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. What emerges from this narrative concerning Jesus are three things very specifically. First, there is his divine wisdom. Second, his convicting speech. And third, there is his tender forgiveness. Beginning first then, let's notice the divine wisdom Jesus demonstrated. Reading 7, 53 to 8 in verse 8. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. In the first three verses of this passage, we see two things that always marked the earthly ministry of Jesus. On the one hand, we see his humiliation, that as the creator of all things, he had no place of his own to settle in during his incarnation. While everyone else, we're told, went to his own house, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And what this apparently insignificant remark should bring to our minds is what Jesus said of himself in Matthew 8 and verse 20. The foxes have holes, and the birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Such was our Lord's humiliation, not to mention even his condescension. On the other hand, we also see in this passage what was the most customary practice Jesus engaged in during his entire earthly ministry. He was always teaching. 
He was always teaching. We read early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he, and he sat down, which all Jewish rabbis did when they taught, and taught them. And what we see our Lord doing here should remind us of what he said at the outset of his ministry recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 43 and 44. Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And then in the narrative, Luke says, Jesus was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So when we look at his earthly ministry, what do we see? Well, there were no marketing strategies he used, no cheap gimmicks to promote himself or his ministry. What Jesus did more than anything in his ministry labors, even more than the miracles he worked, was to teach and preach the good news of God's kingdom to the people. So what we find in these opening verses of our text is nothing unusual as it pertains to the life and ministry of our Lord. But beginning at verse 3, we enter now into what is the primary context of this narrative as a whole. While Jesus is teaching the people, suddenly he is abruptly interrupted. Reading from verses 3 through 6, we get the full picture of this interruption. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. What should stand out to us in the narrative is not the fact that a woman has been caught in the act of adultery. There is something far more sinister and evil going on here than what this woman actually has done. The scribes and Pharisees, understand this, the scribes and Pharisees were making capital out of this woman's sin for the sole purpose of bringing a charge against Jesus. A.W. Pink made this observation. They brought this adulterous woman to Christ not because they were shocked at her conduct, still less because they were grieved that God's holy law had been broken. Their object was to use this woman to exploit her sin and further their own evil designs. With cold-blooded indelicacy they acted, employing the guilt of their captive to accomplish their evil intentions against Christ. Their motive cannot be misinterpreted. They were anxious to discredit our Lord before the people. They did not wait until they could interrogate him in private, but interrupting as he was teaching the people, they rudely challenged him to solve what must have seemed to them an unsolvable enigma. But to understand more fully what the scribes and Pharisees were doing we must understand that not only was it their design to trap Jesus, but they obviously, and listen to this, they had obviously been working to trap the woman as well. The reason such an inference like this could be drawn 
is due, listen, it is due to what they testify about her combined with the strict requirements of Jewish law for such capital offenses. You see, under Jewish law, at this particular period of time, it was necessary to have multiple witnesses who could substantiate actually seeing a man and woman in the very physical act of adultery before any legitimate charge could be brought. Therefore, under these conditions, gathering the needed evidence in this case of adultery would be virtually impossible were the situation itself not a prearranged setup. In other words, as James Montgomery Boyce surmised, we are justified in supposing that the liaison had been fixed, perhaps by the very man who committed adultery with the woman. Was he a member of the Sanhedrin? Whatever the case, the arrangement must have involved the posting of witnesses in the room or at the keyhole. And if this act on the part of the scribes and Pharisees were not repulsive enough, consider this. If you haven't already considered this, as many times as maybe you've read this passage, they only brought the woman to Jesus as guilty of adultery, which exposes their malice and dishonesty in the whole event. Since this sin could not be proven but only by witnesses who saw the couple, the man and the woman in the act of adultery, then we have to ask the obvious question. We have to deal with the pink elephant in the room. Where was the man? Where was he? Notice the claim and accusation of the scribes and Pharisees. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Really? Seriously? Was she alone? Are you kidding? No, of course she wasn't alone. No, she wasn't alone. But listen, they chose not to bring the man. They chose not to bring the man with her. Now, we, we could speculate. Maybe he escaped before they could catch him. Maybe. Or, much worse, they granted the man immunity since he was part of the whole scheme to begin with. Either way, this act on the part of the scribes and Pharisees was one of the most despicable, heinous, ploys they ever worked against Jesus. And to further their own wickedness, they even used God's law to justify what they were doing. Though, of course, they twisted it to their advantage. Look at verse 5. Now in the law, they said to Jesus, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such Women. Hmm. Well, this claim is partly true. It is partly true. First of all, we know that God's moral law absolutely forbids committing the sin of adultery, as 
Exodus 2.14 makes very plain. Second of all, according to Leviticus 20 and verse 10, the death penalty, the death penalty was enacted for those who committed this sin. As it says, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So from a purely legal standpoint, the scribes and Pharisees were speaking the truth. From a purely legal standpoint, this woman caught in the act of adultery deserved to die as commanded by God's law. But where the scribes and Pharisees twisted this law was in claiming exclusively that Moses commanded us to stone who? Such women. Such women. You mean the woman caught in adultery is the only one who gets executed? What about the man? What about the man? But of course, the scribes and Pharisees, as we know from the rest of the Gospels, they cared nothing about justice. If it was justice they actually sought, then why bring this woman to Jesus at all? They could have legally tried her in their own courts where such cases would normally have been heard. Furthermore, according to Luke chapter 12, 13, and 14, Jesus, Jesus was not even an official judge nor a member of the Sanhedrin to even hear such cases. In fact, there was no legal difficulty in this case at all to have to consult a Jewish rabbi. It was an open and shut case. Yet as we know, for the scribes and Pharisees, their entire motive in this, in this whole matter, it was all an attempt to trap Jesus. Even if it meant, and this is how sinister they really were, even if it meant the execution of this woman's life, that was none of their concern. They didn't care. All they wanted was to catch Jesus saying something they could use to destroy him. That's all they cared about. And this is why they bring the question to him, so what do you say? What do you say? Now, we need to, we need to see just how cunning and crafty this question is. All right, I want you to think with me through this. If Jesus says, let the woman go, then they could accuse him of violating God's law and violating his own claim that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. If he says, let the woman go. But... If he says the woman should be stoned, then the scribes and Pharisees could mock and deride Jesus' own claim that he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
they could mock his own compassion on sinners and say it's all a ruse, it's hypocrisy. Either way, they obviously assumed that by this ploy, they had Jesus stuck between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Whatever he answers, either way, whatever he answers, they've got him right where they want him. At least that's what they thought. That's what they thought. So what was our Lord's response? What did Jesus say and do in answer to to their question? Well, the first thing we're told is that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. He did not give them an immediate answer. He just bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Well, you can only imagine the multiple speculations surrounding, well, what exactly did Jesus write? But since we're not told, then the substance of what he wrote isn't really the point of this action. Well, what then was the point And the obvious delay Jesus gave in answering the scribes and Pharisees. I believe John Calvin answers this question the very best. This is what Calvin wrote. By this attitude, Jesus intended to show that he despised them. Christ intended by doing nothing to show how unworthy they were of being hurt. Just as if any person, while another was speaking to him, were to draw lines on the wall or turn his back or to show by any other sign that he was not attending to what was said. But eventually the text tells us Jesus did speak. And what a climactic moment this was in the temple courtyard. There stood the accused woman. Her sin exposed before everyone. There she stood in obvious shame and even terror on the verge of certain execution. Then there were the malicious Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, who had to be gleeful in thinking that finally Jesus had been caught in an impossible dilemma. But at the same time, How puzzling his silence must have been. Because if you read the text in the beginning of verse 7, it says, As they continue to ask him. So imagine this. As he's sitting there writing on the ground, the scribes and Pharisees are just standing there continuing to pester him. Imagine how exasperated they must be in saying to him, What do you say? What do you say to this? What do you say? And our Lord sits silently, saying nothing. But eventually Jesus breaks his silence. And so we read in verse 7, And as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And then we're told he sat right back down and started writing again on the ground. One statement, that was all. One answer, that was it. Simple, yet absolutely profound, demonstrating the wisdom, the divine wisdom of Jesus Christ. It was a statement we could rightfully assert the scribes and Pharisees were not prepared to hear at all. Think about this. In one fell swoop, Jesus upholds the law of God by not denying the guilt of the woman, while at the same time, he broadens the power of the law by exposing the sin of her accusers. In one statement, And I firmly believe that the sin Jesus was in fact exposing in the woman's accusers was their own guilt in committing the sin of adultery. If Jesus meant, now understand why I'm saying this. If Jesus meant just any sin, just sin in general, then that would involve the awkward conclusion that no one could be a judge at all or punish a criminal because no one is altogether and absolutely without sin. In addition to this reasoning, there's the grammatical construction of the noun translated sin in this text, which is in the emphatic position with the definite article. So it's not sin in general he's referring, but a sin in particular. It is a sin in particular. The wisdom then Jesus demonstrated by this startling statement cut the ground right out from under the Jewish leaders by revealing just how unfit they really were to be her judges and executioners. The spirit of this statement by Jesus is reminiscent to us of what Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans 2 in verse 1 regarding the guilt of those who know the law. Paul said, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And that is the spirit of that statement of our Lord. He leveled them. Absolutely leveled them. But not only do we see the divine wisdom Jesus demonstrated, but in the next place we see the convicting speech Jesus communicated. Reading the very first clause of verse 9, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. What kind of effect did the words of Jesus have on the scribes and Pharisees? How did they respond? They responded as men under deep conviction. One by one, we're told. One by one, they went away with not a word in response to Jesus, nor even making a passing remark to the woman. With one single statement, Jesus had brought such conviction upon them all 
that their only recourse, their only recourse was to turn and walk away. Friend, that's power. That's supernatural power. Elaborating on this moment, A.W. Pink wrote the following. Christ's enemies had thought to ensnare him by the law of Moses. Instead, they had its searching light turned upon themselves. Grace had not defied but upheld the law. One sentence from the lips of holiness incarnate, and they were all silenced, convicted, and all departed. At another time, a self-righteous Pharisee might boast of his fastings, his tithes, and his prayers, But when God turns the light on a man's heart, his moral and spiritual depravity become apparent even to himself, and shame shuts his lips. So it was here. Not a word had Christ uttered against the law. In no wise had he condoned the woman's sin. Unable to find any ground for accusation against him, completely baffled in their evil designs, convicted by their conscience, they edged away. And such, therefore, was the convicting speech Jesus communicated. He knew their hearts. Isn't this what we're told in John chapter 2? That our Lord knows the hearts of all men? He knew their hearts. He read them like an open book, page for page. As God incarnate... Jesus knew exactly what to say that would pierce their conscience and quell their plans altogether in a single moment. Only God can do that. And thus the God-man spoke and the plans of evil men fell to the ground. But from the divine wisdom and convicting speech, let's now consider in the very last place the tender forgiveness Jesus administrated. Reading verses 9 through 11, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. One thing we need to understand right up front is that when Jesus asked the woman where her accusers were, this question was reflecting right back to God's law. First, to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, where two or more witnesses are required before a sentence can be passed. And then second, to Deuteronomy 17, and verse 7, where those selfsame witnesses must assist in proceeding to carry out the sentence. But notice, all the witnesses who had seen the woman in the act of adultery, had left the scene. Not a single witness was left to testify against her and thereby carry out the sentence required by the law. 
So the sentence of the law in this circumstance became powerless against her. These lawful requirements could not be met. But in addition to this, we should notice that the question Jesus pressed upon her did not, listen, it did not absolve her guilt or condone what she had done. Not one bit. She had been caught in the sin of adultery. She had sinned, and she was thereby guilty. And Jesus never denied that. He never denied it. But in the face of this fact, what does he say to her? He says quite plainly, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. How do we understand these words? Well, in the first place, as a man who had not witnessed this woman caught in the act of adultery, had not, Jesus, as a man, had not witnessed what she had done, Jesus, therefore, could not and would not carry out what the law prescribed for such a sin. He couldn't. To be perfectly obedient to the law. But in the second place, as God in the flesh... Jesus not only knew what this woman had done, but he knew everything there was to know about her since in his deity he is all-knowing. So then as God, Jesus had the right, he had the authority, he had the power to condemn this sinful woman to eternal hellfire. But instead... What does Jesus say to her? He says, neither do I condemn you. These words of our Lord not only relate to his fulfillment of the law, as mentioned out of Deuteronomy, but also, listen, they also reflect his own divine prerogative to forgive sinners their sin. And this is exactly what Jesus is pronouncing upon this woman. He is pronouncing her forgiveness. But understand, beloved, it is not a forgiveness that either ignores or makes allowances for the sin she has in fact committed. Thus, on the heels of administering forgiveness, Jesus then calls this woman to what? What does he call her to do? He calls her to a life of repentance. He says to her, go, and from now on, sin no more. While Jesus did not condemn her yet, at the same time, he called her to flee her sin. To flee her life in sin. Jesus says, in effect, from this point onward, from this point onward, do not return to your life in sin. As one writer said in this regard, the liberating work of Jesus did not mean the excusing of sin. 
And so we do not see the Lord Jesus Christ in any way whatsoever excusing what this woman had done. Being somehow lenient upon her sin. No. He called her to repent. He called her to repent. Well, in closing our study of John 7, 53 to 8, 11, what should be our takeaway? What can we learn as application from this account in the life of our Lord? What would be, to use John Calvin's word, our advantage to apply this passage? Well, I believe there are two simple direct lessons we can draw from this passage. Number one, conviction of sin never means conversion to Christ. Conviction of sin never means conversion to Christ. The scribes and Pharisees were obviously convicted by what Jesus said and their consciences struck hard enough that they refused to carry out their evil intentions. But not a single one of them were converted to Christ on that day. They were convicted over their sin, but did not turn to Christ. And as you can only imagine, there are so many people like this today. So many people in the visible church like this today. They see their sin They admit it's wrong. They know they shouldn't do it. They know what God says about it. They are convicted. Yes, they are convicted. But they know nothing of the life-changing power of God in Christ that sets them free from this slavery. Convicted of their sin, yes, but they have yet to close with Christ in true conversion. So you see them convicted but remain under the dominion of sin. This is exactly what we see with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 7 through 13. There is Paul speaking of deep conviction over what the law commanded him not to do. You shall not covet. But Paul in that spiritual autobiography section of Romans 7 He is referring back to the past, back to his pre-conversion days, and he is communicating that under the law, he was deeply convicted, but he was not yet set free from sin. He had not yet come to faith in Christ. Conviction of sin, as important as, as it is, because it is a work of the Spirit to convict sinners of their sin. So as important as it is, if we see or encounter someone who is genuinely convicted of their sin, we must not rush with haste to say, oh, they must be converted to Christ. Well, what about the fruit of the Spirit? Aren't you seeing something more here than just conviction? My friend, if you're not seeing something more than conviction, you're not yet seeing a true conversion. Because conviction of sin never means conversion to Christ. 
The second lesson is this. And this one needs to be shouted from the rooftops to churches across this land. God's forgiveness is never cheap. God's forgiveness is never cheap. There is no such thing in the testimony and truth of God's word to be forgiven by God and yet continue a life in unrepentant sin. Forgiveness by God is not a license to sin. What does Paul say in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2? After he has just spoken those profound and astounding words at the end of Romans 5, that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Well, how do you suppose people in the church would misinterpret that? Well, Paul goes ahead of them. He anticipates the misinterpretation. So in Romans 6, 1 and 2, he says, well, what should we say then? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what is the divine answer? May it never be. Paul, as you've heard me say this so many times, his immediate answer to that question is the strongest Greek Listen, it is the strongest idiom of repudiation in the original Greek language. Meganatoi. Perish the thought. That is with many exclamation points at the end. In other words, to think that you can continue in sin and by continuing in sin that grace is just going to abound more and more and more to you, such an idea is absolutely unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Forgiveness by God is not a license to sin. So, while we see Jesus forgiving the woman caught in adultery, we also see Jesus doing what? Commanding her to do what? He's commanding her to abandon her sinful, adulterous life. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Jesus did not say to her, go in peace. He didn't say to her, hope you have a wonderful life. No. What did he say? He called her to repent. He called her to forsake her sin. He called her to break it off from this point onward. Break it off. You don't go back to that. Repent. Have nothing more to do with this. But what we need to understand, beloved, in the light of what the entire New Testament Scriptures teach us, not to mention the Old Testament as well, the entire Word of God, the whole counsel of God, The real fruit of a forgiven life in Christ is repentance of sin. A forgiven sinner 
is a repenting sinner. A forgiven sinner is a repenting sinner. Not only are you grateful to God that he has forgiven you, but that gratitude translates into a life that hates the sin that remains and seeks to kill it at all costs. You're not saying, oh, well, I know God has forgiven me, and then you just make excuse after excuse after excuse why you can't repent. You ever encountered people like that? I've encountered plenty of people like that over the years. And I'm not talking about people out there in the world. I am talking about people in the visible church. They want the forgiveness of God. They want the assurance of God's forgiveness. But they will not repent of their sin. Well, I've got news for you. There are no unrepentant sinners in heaven. None. None. When the prodigal came back to his estranged father, he came back repenting. His return was in repentance. Repentance is what the Christian life looks like in truth. You're not conniving with sin. You're not mollycoddling your sin. You're not making excuses for your sin. You're taking full responsibility and you are taking action by the power of the Spirit to put this thing to death. Now, does that mean that as a Christian, you'll never sin before we get to glory? Well, I think we all know the answer to that. Does that mean you'll never struggle against sin? No. Does that mean you'll never be tempted? No. Does that mean that you'll never enter into temptation? Well, no. The truth is, as Christians, we sin every day. But here's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The Christian is always going against the, against the stream of sin. The non-Christian is going with the flow of the stream. There is no fight. There is no struggle. There is no pushing back. There is no seeking and striving to kill this once and for all. There is no war. There is no battle. No, the non-Christian is every day at peace with their sin. But not the Christian. The moment God saved you, he brought you into a war. And that war is not just what's going on outside of you, friend. That war is what's happening inside of you, not every once in a while, but every day. That is why repentance in the Christian life is not just for a day. Repentance, as Thomas Boston said, is for a whole lifetime. Luther said, we are daily repenters. That's the normal, biblical, Christian life. And so it should not surprise us one bit to see 
in our Savior and Lord saying to this woman caught in the act of adultery, from now on go and sin no more. Forgiven by God, repenting of our sin. That's the transformed life brought by God's grace in Christ to every sinner God saves. That is what is most characteristic. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you, Lord God, for what we have seen and what we have beheld today. Another example of the righteousness and the holiness of Christ Jesus our Lord. Another example of the kind of life you have called us to live as your people day in and day out. A life of killing sin, a life of repenting of our sins. And so, Lord, while we thank you and will forever thank you for the full and complete forgiveness that we have in Christ of all our transgressions, yet we know from what your word teaches that that sweet forgiveness is not a cheap thing. It is not something that we can use ever to justify our continuing to sin. And so, Lord, we pray today that in our gratitude for your forgiveness, we will, by the strength of your grace, show more and more each and every day as your people a greater and enlarged repentance of our sins in our very lives. We will put that gratitude with both feet on the ground, running and fleeing from the very sins Jesus paid the price to set us free from. We thank you, Lord, for what we have learned today from this portion and this passage of your word. Seal it, we pray to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctify us by the truth of your holy word that we have been privileged to hear. These things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.